Great, so welcome to this fantastic panel session that we have uh, ready for you on GovTech. So public sector, not often thought of as synonymous with innovation, but new uh, entrepreneurs coming in, disrupting old norms, producing uh, innovative technologies and, um, and products and services that are really changing the game in government delivery of services. And we've got a fantastic panel for you today. Um, really, they range across the full sector. So we have um, creators of products and services. We have Perivales here from Cytal, um, which is uh, running a really cryptocurrency or crypto election technology. You can explain this better, I think, to um, our audience than I can. But securing um, election campaigns um, and the results of those election campaigns. We have um, through to ventures um, that are connecting startups with government agencies. So we have Daniel Korski here from uh, Public, um, which is uh, really an incubator connecting and, and giving resources to um, startups that are looking to provide services, uh, public services, and, and working with governments. All the way um, from a Zurich airport. Can you hear us, Robin? Great. We have Robin Scott here, um, founder of Apolitical, um, so a platform uh, that connects civil servants from across different jurisdictions to share ideas and expertise. Um, and finally, we have knitting it all together across um, the full innovation ecosystem, um, Pateras um, Zilgalvis um, from the European Commission, head of uh, innovation and, and startups. Um, and so the full range um, of the industry here today, um, what we'll be looking at is diving into some of the exciting trends in, in GovTech, some of the new challenges and questions that that is raising, and we hope to leave you with more questions than you came in with. Um, so we'd love to continue the conversation after this panel. Without further ado, we'd love to kick off by asking each of the panelists just to share with us one exciting trend that they're seeing in GovTech, one of the biggest opportunities they see, and how their organisation is uh, plugging into or addressing that challenge. Um, would you like to kick us off, Daniel? Sure, I can. Thank you very much for, uh, for, for inviting me and, and joining us today. I mean, the first thing I'd, I'd like to say is, um, take a step back, there's an extraordinary thing happening. Um, we are seeing uh, the transformation of public services in a way um, that we have not seen for decades. And um, although be it slower than in financial services or retail or advertising, this change is now finally coming to public services. And as a result, what we're seeing um, is transformation across the range of sectors. So whether it's midwifery um, care or social care uh, on the sort of healthcare side or the transformation of welfare services or employment, um, we're just seeing entrepreneurs kind of coming out of, out of the woodwork and schools and institutes like this and other companies saying, well, hang on, can this technology be used differently? And we're seeing public policymakers saying there's got to be a different way of delivering those services. So I, I think it's worth kind of just say, talking for a second about the breadth, uh, breadth that I know Robin has a, a really great perspective on. Um, one of the things we talked about just before we, we started this panel was uh, around this perpetual challenge of unemployment and how on earth we prepare our workforce for increased automation. Now, this isn't going to be yet another conversation about automation and employment. No, this is a question about a company that we bank called Zuna which is trying to gather as much data possibly uh, found on the internet on all jobs available and trying with that um, to help those in long-term unemployment 
um, be much more focused on the kind of jobs that they might succeed at, even if they didn't necessarily know those were the jobs that um, they ought to be applying for. And that's just kind of the latest thing that we discussed, how a data-driven approach um, is helping a range of sectors, but in particular, this challenge of helping the unemployed. And I think that goes, I think, maybe to my, my first point, which is um, the introduction of data science into public service delivery is a big, big trend. Well, uh, thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, my trend is, a bit, is going to be a little bit self-interested. Cytel uh, uh, is a company that is trying to transform one of the, I would say, hardest areas within government, which is the way elections are run. And you go to a polling station, basically what you see today is the same thing that you would have found 50 years ago or even 100 years ago. So it's an area where basically technology has not penetrated yet, and there's very little innovation. And, and we're trying to change that by bringing software and internet into election processes with the objective of making elections more accessible to citizens and more efficient to run by governments. And in those countries that still have problems with election fraud, use technology to mitigate or at least um, try to reduce the possibility for, for election fraud. So we've uh, worked in, in 47 countries all over the world, and I think we've seen the, the good, the bad, and the ugly in elections in, in the public sector space. And I think the, 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 the trend that, um, that uh, has the potential to change not only the, the way governments work, but the, even the governance of the governments, is, 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 the, is this technology of online voting uh, and the possibility for citizens to not only participate in elections, but participate in, in consultations. If we think about uh, today's democracy, it's, it's very different from what it was originally designed. I mean, uh, the original democracy in Greece was uh, a direct democracy where citizens basically voted for every major issue directly. And obviously, this model had a problem, which uh, in, in startups is, is called scalability, and it didn't scale well. You know, as the police grew bigger, it was more difficult to consult uh, more people uh, on, on, on all the issues. And as these policies uh, got together and, and formed nations, uh, it, it became impossible uh, from a logistical point of view to be able to consult citizens. But I think now, and, and that's why today we have a, a representative democracy where uh, it's an indirect form of democracy where we elect our representatives and they vote uh, for all the issues on our behalf for, for four years. Uh, and we only have a say every four years. So I think with, uh, with technology uh, and with online voting and with the cryptography that is behind online voting to guarantee things like the secrecy of the vote or the, or the integrity of, of, the, of the voting process. I think we have an opportunity to evolve our current system of representative democracy towards a, a more hybrid system where it's still representative democracy but we combine that with some uh, elements of direct democracy and where citizens basically are consulted periodically on, on specific issues. And, and I think we're seeing already this trend materializing especially at the local uh, government level with uh, citizen consultations on uh, how, uh, for example, a percentage of the budget should be spent. Uh, and I think this is going to, this is going to go further uh, in the future, uh, and it's going to reach all levels of, of government. Great, thank you. And, and Pateros, what, what do you see from um, your vantage point, really, uh, across whole ecosystems in Europe? Uh, working with a holistic viewpoint for rapid adoption of new technologies in Europe. Uh, first of all, investing in areas that are very promising like artificial intelligence, blockchain, high performance computing. Secondly, working on the standards area to make sure that there are these bottom-up voluntary standards that can help for interoperability by default. For instance, uh, ISO Technical Committee 307 on blockchain, which includes smart contracts where we participate. 
Next, working with the member states, so across the European Union, on our digital day two on the 10th of April this year, we'll have a declaration to be signed by those member states that want to, that we want a common European approach to public use of blockchain and its development. Next, utilizing tools like regulatory sandboxes to see where these technologies work that were not foreseen and that don't necessarily contravene any existing legislation, but they're a little bit out of the box, can be tested ideally together with the regulator. This means actually probably more supervision, not less. And then finally, where necessary, where self-regulation isn't enough, looking to the future for enabling legislation, for instance, in an area like smart contracts, whether they would be enforceable and at the same time revocable and what the jurisdiction would be if we want to use them on the blockchain, or things like uh, the initial coin offerings that are not securities in the secondary markets. But doing that only when necessary and when it's fine, then leaving an area either unregulated or under broader regulation. Brilliant, thank you. And Robin, uh, you have a unique vantage point uh, seeing civil servants across different jurisdictions, across a lot of different areas of government. What do you see that you're most excited about and how does Apolitical plug into that? Well, I want to talk about uh, a sexy trend and a less sexy trend, um, because both are important. So the sexy stuff, the really exciting stuff, is what's already been touched on, citizen engagement, things that citizens feel, frontline services. So that could be different ways of participating in democracy. There's some really cool experiments being tried in, in South America cities, looking at mobile phone data to see how women use transport systems differently. It's a really frugal way of redesigning a system that's much safer. In Barcelona, there's an experiment being run, run at the moment where people are able to give their data, but only in return for very carefully measured um, improved public services. So it's a much more fair data exchange. And those are just a few examples of very many like them, which are all super exciting, as well as the stuff harnessing artificial intelligence and blockchain and so forth. But I think the thing I'm personally most excited about and the reason I do what I do is much less sexy. It is the technology that public servants themselves use, which has been by that time until now at enormous cost to society. So what we do is try and make it super easy for public servants to learn what's working in other countries which government is terrible on the whole at doing because information is so fragmented um, uh, and silo. Just, just one example, a third of the World Bank's reports have never read a single time. So public servants often resort to Googling or phoning a friend when they want stuff. And the cost is enormous. So what we want to do is by bringing technology to public servants, help citizens indirectly. And, and the calculation we make, just to give you a sense of the, the magnitude and what's at stake, is that government controls around 40% of GDP globally. It's more than $30 trillion a year. There's lots of room for improvement, clearly. There's no silver bullet, clearly. But if you take just 1% of the spend and improve its efficiency 50% by doing more of what's working and less of what's not, you unlock $150 billion a year for society. And that's what we want to do. We think it's unacceptable that a traveler can find out about lumps in a mattress on the other side of the world, but a public servant can't quickly find out about no lumps in a policy when the stakes are so high. 
Great, thank you, Robin. And to pick up on that point um, of you can have as much new technology entering the market as possible, uh, but if governments aren't set up with the right capabilities, risk appetite, um, openness to change, then you'll, you'll struggle to, to see these things uh, come to fruition. Um, we'd love to, to hear your thoughts, Daniel, from working with startups and attempting to uh, connect in with government. What do you see um, are some of the challenges? What, what needs to change, if anything, about the way governments are currently set up to better enable some of these new GovTech startups to, to gain traction? Sure, it's a great question. So just by way of background, I used to work for the British Prime Minister um, and sought as best as I could to make um, the UK government open and, and willing to work with innovators, um, not just in the technology space, but across. And what I found, um, which is what led me um, to establish public when I left government, um, was that there was a problem on both the supply and the demand side. Um, we've talked a little bit about um, the demand side, um, i.e. what government can and cannot do. Um, there's a skills um, challenge, which is to ensure that people have uh, the ability and understanding of what's possible. Um, that can be uh, very specific, but it can also be very generic. You know, there were 30 people who worked at WhatsApp when it was sold to Facebook um, for 19 billion pounds. The collapse of, of the price of technology and the distribution of um, uh, ability has meant that smaller companies can now deliver services that in the past only the largest, most capitalized businesses could. Uh, and one of the key reasons for that has been the advent of cloud computing, which means that small companies can build on platforms that the likes of Google, uh, AWS, Microsoft, and many other companies have spent billions and billions of pounds to deliver, which actually means that the small company is relying on you know, hundreds of thousands of employees that have built this platform upon which they're building. It allows them to do things cheaper and better than before, but not a lot of uh, civil servants necessarily know enough about that transformation to realize the confidence that they can have in startups. So there's a sort of kind of specific set of skills required and a kind of generic set of understandings of the sector. And I think um, on the supply side, just to jump to that, I mean, I could go on to the demand side, but, but Robin made a very eloquent point about kind of allowing officials to understand what others have done. Um, on the supply side, which is what I, I focus on uh, public, so we invest in, accelerate, and support tech startups that want to transform public services. Um, and what we wanted to do was to build a much more rigorous pipeline of companies that didn't just know, you know, your Secretary of State from your Minister of State, um, didn't just know what a tender looked like and could apply for one, but had, to, what, to a degree, you know, products that were easily fit into that market, that were better at re, you know, delivering the kind of data and uh, cyber and ethical standards that public services across the world expect from people to sell into them. Um, and finally, to, to fund and support uh, tech startups. Most of the people that I was talking to before um, establishing public were saying, yeah, I've got this great idea, but I can't find anyone to fund this. Um, but if I just pivoted a little bit towards a consumer market, I get lots of funding. And it, that just struck me as a disaster, you know, because we all rely on well-functioning public services, perhaps more so than we rely on, you know, the two seconds that technology will improve the speed of getting a pizza to you delivered. And so, you know, we have tried to lead the way in encouraging other investors to follow us in backing, you know, great tech startups that want to transfer public services. Brilliant, thank you. And, and Pedro, to, just to follow on from that, um, 
Um, I mean, you, you have now worked with over 40 different governments. So what do you see that those governments that are really well set up to work with you, um, what, what, what is the difference between governments that you've seen throughout your work? And, and what would you like to change, if anything, um, in, in those governments that, that work less well? I think we, we all always complain that governments are very conservative when it comes to, to innovation or, or when, when it comes to trying something new. But the reality is that their behavior is very rational. Uh, the, the, when, when they do something innovative or, or, or they try to introduce a new technology in their processes, uh, if something, if, if the project is a complete success, uh, basically they don't get almost no recognition. They, they, at best they get a couple of lines in, in, a, in a very small article in the last pages of the newspaper. But if that same project uh, goes wrong, then it makes uh, the front the front page, you know, and, and it's a it's a big it's a big it's a big mess. So the equation of risk reward that they face is is different from the equation that uh, the private sector faces. And I think that if we as a society want governments to be more innovative, we need to basically uh, try to understand that, uh, or try to implement the same culture that we have for startups, you know, where, where failure is an option, where you fail, you learn, and then you improve. Uh, and and, and we, we, we don't have the same bar to measure the, the performance of governments in this type of project. So, so I would say, in general, uh, what I've seen in all the different countries where, where we work is that there is uh, a lot of resistance uh, to change. And the resistance is because uh, governments feel that uh, if they do something innovative and it doesn't work well, they're going to get killed you know, in the media. So I think if we want uh, to change this, uh, we need to basically change the society and we need to be more, more understanding you know, that these type of projects uh, involve some risk and, and, and if we want to make change happen, we need to uh, accept uh, the possibility of failure. Such a tough problem in governments. How, how do you allow you know, space for, for risk taking when there's so much uh, accountability at stake? Pateras, um, from the perspective of someone looking to foster ecosystems, how, how do you address that, that issue? Yeah, I was just following up on that directly. I mean, a lot of the issues are related to incentives. So, I mean, I have the responsibility in a policy sense for innovation procurement, buying an innovative result instead of something just off the shelf, and also for, for blockchain policy. At the same time, we're trying to also walk the talk and not just tell people what to do. So we're looking within our own services of perhaps doing, I don't know, perhaps I don't quite have an intention to do that, doing innovation procurement and or developing ourselves um, European public services on blockchain where it's appropriate. And soon, this I can already promise, on the 10th of April, we'll have a website, an app, and an innovation forum for Innovation Radar, which is the most uh, successful innovations coming out of, of EU funding. But getting back to the incentives, I mean, a lot of this is not just the responsibility of my unit, especially when it's programs of a European level. They are often procured centrally. And there you have colleagues who are very professional and very good at what they do, which is, in principle, procuring some kind of thing at the lowest price possible so they feel most comfortable and most successful procuring something from Microsoft or IBM at a, at a lower price than it is on the market and then you start telling them yes let's do an innovation procurement let's say we want this solution and we can use blockchain or we can use another technology which would also share some of the same characteristics or same advantages and this is exactly what you're saying there unless you just convince them intellectually and then they're ready to carry the risk because there's really not much of an upside to them. If it 
goes well, they get as much credit as they do for get doing the, the simple thing well. If it goes badly, uh, they, could, they could be blamed, etc. So I mean, it is a little bit the way that the government is set up. It's not impossible. You see a lot of member states using a lot of innovation procurements. You see a lot of use of blockchain machine learning starting now, at least on the pilot level. Uh, we have several pilots right now on a financial transparency gateway on the blockchain, uh, tax reporting on, on the blockchain. So it's possible, um, but it's an advantage if we can utilize the introduction of the new technologies as a way to also change the way that public services are managed. Great, and, and to explore this, um, this individual civil servant capabilities further, Robin, you have worked a lot with civil servants of different jurisdictions. Um, what do you see are the keys to, to the most successful civil servants who are able to engage, share and learn from other jurisdictions? Is it uh, personal, something to do with the structure of the organisation they're in? Um, sure, and I'll, I'll come to that, but just to pick up quickly on, on the previous point. So I, I totally take what was said about um, procurement officials acting according to their briefing and procuring at the lowest rate. I do think one of the structural problems is the fact that a lot of these tenders, which are given to officials to procure for, don't actually recognize what's already out in the market because startups don't have a great interface with governments. So often people aren't, just, aren't aware of um, new innovations which might cross, uh, say, two different completely, completely unrelated policy um, areas with great savings for citizens. So the stuff that uh, public is doing a lot, making socialising startups with government is really, really critical. And I think we have to get better at going further upstream um, to see what's actually available to start with. Um, I think another thing that we've had, and this kind of comes to the what makes a public servant successful, um, I think it's reframing what is often seen as risk as opportunity to look at the, the future and understand the future and stay ahead of things. So where, where procurement seems to work fastest for startups is often where it's been very clearly stated, understood and driven by someone in power um, and, and understanding has been driven that this is a way to participate in the future. And even though the future might not be coming in a form that your systems are comfortable with, um, you should do it because it's important to competitiveness. Um, other, um, other characteristics, this is slightly separate to, to procurement, um, for successful public servants, uh, I mean, depressingly, one of them is grit. I've met some of the grittiest people I've ever met uh, in the last two years working in the sector because you have to wait so long for the right window and you have to do such consensus building and constituency building internally as well as externally to get things through. Um, and the other, another critical one is uh, really good communication skills because I think what people outside of government often underestimate is the sheer challenge and the, the degree of stakeholders you have to get over the line um, and involved in anything for it to be successful for it to get signed off and then for it to be implemented successfully. There's there's a long list of, of other ones, but I would just make a final point which, which comes back to this issue about rational actors, and that is that if we don't, as society, start taking a more nuanced view of governments and acknowledge that 
there are colossal challenges and anything involving allocating resources for citizens is always going to involve trade-offs. If you don't do that and if you don't um, allow risks to be taken and reward smart risks in the right way, we will never see the innovation we need in government. Um, we cannot, I mean, look at, um, witness this conference um, and so many, we, we're fantastic at celebrating innovators in the private sector and civil society. And if we don't get better at celebrating what does work in government, we're never going to get similar levels of innovation. Thanks, Robin. Daniel, you wanted to add to that? Yeah, I just want to come in on another point um, that I was reminded of um, when Robin was speaking about procurement. And we've talked a bit about kind of the people um, and how they, have, like everybody else, needs to, need to go on a journey to understand the, the new technology. But there's also a series of really important and difficult policy questions around procurement. And it's basically, um, I, th I find it valuable to think about it this way. For a long time, government had a lot of inherent capabilities. Those capabilities were then shared, and government basically went on a buying spree. And so what it did was it would buy stuff. Um, so Oracle would come along, or any other big primes, and say, we can deliver all this. Um, we can either customize a product we've got in the private market, or you can just you know, bring it on site. Usually what happened was government would buy it, and then whenever inevitably things had to be altered, Oracle or the like would charge a lot of money, in order to make that transformation. Government kind of realized after a while that um, that wasn't very good and led by the UK um, and by the kind of explosion in startup development thought, hey, we can, we can build stuff. And then you had this sort of real drive in a number of governments to build it inside. So government kind of brought in engineers and said, well, you know, we should be building um, this particular feature of our website and so on. Um, and then that, in my view, that the pendulum swung way too much on the other side, where government was trying to build stuff that there's no way they were ever going to build as well as on the outside. And I'll give you a really sort of super simple example. We back a company called Echo that does online prescriptions, works with behavioral science to make sure that people take the prescri prescriptions. Because guess what? One of the biggest barriers to people actually taking the medication they need is the lack of availability and the fact that they forget. So they don't go down to the pharmacy, gosh, I have to pick up the kids, I forgot, I'll do it tomorrow, I'm not gonna take that pill. Well, it prolongs the, the, the ailment they're trying to deal with, it costs the NHS, so health services more, and so on. Echo, amazing company, built by an Apple executive and, um, and, and a pharmacist, has developed a really cool way of doing it. The NHS, at the same time, is building their own online prescription service. And when we started backing Echo, people said, are you mad? Um, you know, the whole of the NHS is going to try this, and you think that you can bank a company that's going to outcompete the NHS? And I said, we will absolutely win that battle. Absolutely. There is no way the NHS is going to build something as intuitive and nice looking and easy to work with as what an Apple executive is going to build. But the fact that we're still having to go up against the NHS on this is an illustration that we, we, we haven't reached a moment yet where that boundary has kind of moved back, the, the pendulum has swung back from we can build everything to, you know, what we need to do is to decide what the standards are people have to build to. We have to decide what we want to see um, how the data is managed. And then we want to allow third parties to plug in in various different ways. And then let that third party build the, the best UX, UA, because actually that's not what you on the whole are going to be best at if you build a career inside the NHS. And just to maybe intervene on this, uh, I don't know if I have the exact figure, but I think the Estonian colleagues with uh, ERDF funding, who's also supporting this event, I think built the e-prescription system for 3 million euro. 
and it seems to work. I'm not an Estonian prescription consumer, but it seems to work very well. Yeah, I'll give you another example. I went to see the health minister in the in the um, in the UK in the uh, wake of the ransomware attack that you'll probably remember when everybody had their medical files locked in, and we were having a conversation with a number of health tech um, startups, uh, the founders of. And, uh, and he was sort of lamenting this, and he said, the big problem is, you know, I just don't have 200 million pounds in my budget to fix this. And one of the startups was like, well, I can fix the phishing part of it, so the fact that you're responding to, you know, dodgy emails, um, for about 200,000 pounds. And who on earth has quoted you this 200 million pound figure? Well, needless to say, the big vendor that has been operating the contract forever. Um, and so, you know, it, it's a good example um, of some of these challenges. And so picking up and opening it up to, to Robin and, and Perna, this, this question of uh, we've seen with the collapse of Carillion in, in the UK, uh, a slight shake-up of the, the outsourcing model uh, and this pendulum idea that uh, Daniel's brought in of how do you balance um, what you do internally versus what you uh, do through third parties and, and outsource. I would love to hear um, from... Robin and, and Pedro, do you have a, a view on how governments decide what it is they should do internally um, versus outsource and, and work with others to do? I think... Uh, well, as a, sorry. Um, Robin, go ahead. Robin, would you like to, to kick off and then we'll go to Pedro? Sure. Um, I mean, it's a difficult question. I think it's going to vary by government. The one thing I do feel very strongly about to get back to Daniel's pendulum analogy is that government has to have internally enough people who understand enough about these technologies and the methodologies around them in order to make good decisions. So where you where along that spectrum you put the, the build versus buy is going to change. But if you don't have technologists and people who think in terms of prototyping and agile development, um, you won't be doing the, the right buying in the first place, and you won't be identifying the problems in the right way. And we've covered a lot of great small ideas that have come out of, um, of uh, you know, young people in government just building stuff very quickly. So, for example, um, data sharing and data visualization in one ministry in the UK, which has now spread to a bunch of others, because it was just a very simple product that spoke to a very specific and well-understood problem. So I think as long as you've got that baseline, um, you can then, based on individual circumstances, uh, move the dial in terms of what you buy. But I take the point that, uh, that Daniel makes that government can certainly not build everything. Great, thank you. Okay. Yeah, I think, I think this debate is, 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 is quite political. Uh, the, 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 the people that tend to be more on the left, uh, they, they, they tend those governments tend to basically try to, to build everything uh, themselves and, and the people that are more conservative on the conservative side that don't believe in big government they, they tend to outsource everything uh, to the private sector and as always I think the virtue is in the in the middle you know in finding the, the right balance and, and I agree with uh, what Robin was saying that you you can basically buy uh, the best product from the outside but you need as a government to have uh, some control over that provider and in order to have that control you, you to have the know-how in-house um, and, and that's what we have seen that works best you know uh, customers that are, are sophisticated uh, governments that are sophisticated in the sense that they understand uh, what they're doing and they understand what they're buying and they have the internal capabilities to implement our solution but that uh, instead of trying to build uh, their solution themselves like uh, Estonia did for example with uh, online voting 
they they go with the with, with the solution with the market solution that is uh, is, is available that uh, it has a, it's, it's a product it, it keeps evolving and it keeps adding new security features as it's implemented in, in new countries um, and finding that con combination of uh, good government control with the best product uh, in the market I think is the is the is the combination that works the best. Thank you. And just before we hear from Daniel, we're going to open it up to questions. So please do start to think, what, what would you like to hear from more? Daniel? One of the things that's frustrated me the most as part of this conversation is um, government access on behalf of citizens to citizens' data. And so we have seen a number of examples. I mean, I've just been shocked at this, where governments at local or central level have entered into contracts that mean that large corporations sit on the data. And so when the government wants to access the data in order to understand how um, interventions, say, with children in need or something else need to be uh, you know, improved or altered, um, they can only access the data if they pay more. I mean, to me, there's got to be whatever you do, choose to build or not build, um, you, there's got to be some basic kind of like the Ten Commandments of how you operate. And one of them must surely be that a democratically elected government can, on behalf of citizens, access data about those citizens in the appropriate way under oversight and so on, rather than having that sort of sitting with a private provider because there was a contract 10 years ago, um, which lasts 20 years. Um, that feels totally inappropriate. Okay. Going to open it out to questions. Um, anyone want to kick us off? Luke? Yeah, um, you've talked a lot about, I guess, the, I don't know, between... Robin, can you hear the question? Uh, yeah, the difference between kind of the public sector and obviously the private. Have there been any successful kind of intermediaries who've been able to kind of, uh, I don't know, lead that conversation um, so that it's not just, I don't know, one back and forth, I guess? Well, I'd like to think that public, the business that we've got, is one such intermediary. We run an accelerator program for companies that will transform public services. We invest in companies, so we would like to think of ourselves as one of them. But, I mean, you know, sparing her blushes, Robin's business, um, apolitical, I also think is a very important intermediary that, in a different way, shows, you know, what startups can do in order to transform public services. And crucially, what startups have done elsewhere which gives a sense of validation to officials. So, you know, we're at an early stage, there aren't that many of us, but, you know, I'd like to think that the two of us are, are, are sort of in the early vanguard. Yes. Um, something, and it gives me the opportunity to say we have a, a FinTech uh, action plan coming on the 7th of March next week, which is another thing that I'm partially responsible for as co-chair of the FinTech Task Force. But what's interesting there that's perhaps in the line of your question is we're setting up a, a FinTech Innovation Lab, and the idea there is exactly to raise the capacity of regulators on technologies. And this is where you have the interplay between technology adoption and how capable the public sector, in this case, regulators, most of all in the financial sector, are. So you have areas like cloud, artificial intelligence, blockchain, where often, especially a financial sector regulator, has questions, isn't so sure about the technology, either because they don't have so many people, especially in smaller member states, working on it, or because they have a very strict conflict of interest sets of provisions, 
and so the regulators don't go out and get, uh, how to say, Microsoft and uh, OVH and other presentations and, and, and visit them. So in this uh, case, we'll have a neutral space chaired by the Commission, and technology providers can come together with the regulators to answer questions on things like auditability of the cloud, service level agreements, what the technology does and doesn't do. And so this is actually probably more fostering rapid technology acceptance, adoption in the private sector, but by raising the capacity of the public sector, uh, the regulators. Can I just be a bit provocative and say, I will judge your measure, your initiative, on whether this is ultimately populated by Accenture, Deloitte, and McKinsey, or whether you are genuinely bringing in new and innovative players. Because in my experience, um, initiatives like that um, well-conceived and um, righteous in their um, uh, objective falter when they end up delivering the, these kind of sandboxes or systems through the st established large players. So as an outsider, that I think is, should be the measure of whether we judge you know, this as a partial success or not. I'll be very frank, only technology providers, no consultants, in the cloud, I'll also be very frank as well. Uh, the big five are, are all American, and then we have OVH, which is, I think it's OVH, it's uh, three, three letters, is a French provider. And we're going to try to get some of the specialized cloud startups in there. But I mean, it is a little difficult. That's a little bit of an industrial policy sidelight. But it would only be the technology providers, unless something drastically changes. That's, that's our vision. All right, other questions? Oh, may I? Oh, certainly. Robert, would you like to jump in? Um, just, just a quick point. So all of these are great initiatives and important, but um, I think for real change to happen at scale, one of the more cultural shifts that has to happen is there needs to be more rotation between different sectors. You need to have uh, more people in the private sector seeing a stint in the public sector as being an important part of their careers. Because when you talk to the most successful public servants, it's often because they come from very different perspectives and they just break the rules because they can't tolerate them. So it would be wonderful to see a lot more of that. Great, thank you. Because we've got such interest, I'm going to take two or three questions um, and then invite the, the panel to answer those questions that Robin, we Robin, you can't see, but there's a forest of hands. <laughs> okay, so um, in the front here. Okay, um, this is a more question to you. Do you think there's anything you can do to just stop government damaging innovation? Because my experience in FinTech and working in cryptography and working, trying to work with the UK government is that it's all been about damage that they've done to, to my efforts. So when I've tried to work, um, I, I wrote to the relevant departments about uh, the UK Verify thing and said basically competing with stuff I've invested in. And they said, fine, um, you can share your information with Microsoft and Google and Facebook. And what's the problem? The technology will happen. And then on the FinTech side, um, the, the basic problem is if you're a FinTech company at the moment, the biggest problem is getting out a bank account. HSBC, Barclays, Lloyds, NatWest are just saying, no, we're not opening bank accounts for new fintech startups. It, it, we don't need big policies. We don't need you to bring people together. You need to stop big players damaging the little fish. Great. Thank you. So uh, what, what can governments do to actually stop damaging um, what, what's going on in, in GovTech and, and in tech startups? Um, another question I think we had over here in the second row. Um, so you spoke at the beginning about um, the excitement building 
be able to um, foster citizen engagement. Um, I'm curious what you have to say about the illusion of transparency or perhaps inflated trust that we place in entrepreneur-driven tech um, and what biases or assumptions might be embedded in digital infrastructures that you know need to be thought about. Are you thinking about that? Um, and if so, how and what are you doing to kind of abate that so we don't end up with situations like Twitter and um, meddling in elections and that sort of stuff? Great, so for, for Robin, uh, a question on, um, do we think about the, the potential bias we have um, in, in thinking about uh, new startups um, and you know, how to mitigate um, some of the potential risks there? And we had, a, I think, a hand up over in the corner over here. Um, I was going to ask a, a slightly challenging question, I, I hope. But um, I, can you pitch GovTech to me as a space to, to get involved in, and that is an interesting <coughs> space? Because I, so I've just spent the last five years basically building and, and scaling a startup, and I'm figuring out what to do next. But GovTech, I think, as, as you talked about in terms of government sort of hindering things, um, and you talked about in terms of getting funding, it seems like just not a totally attractive space to come into. Can we answer this question? Okay, so I'll, I'll... Great, and so for Robin, can we pitch GovTech? So what, what is it about the sector um, that you would pitch um, to get people, more people involved? So um, opening up to the panel, um, perhaps, um, Peter, would you like to kick us off um, answering whatever you would like to touch on? Yeah, maybe, maybe the last, last question. On, it's, it's true that GovTech is not uh, super attractive for venture capital funds because in general anything that has to do with technology and governments scares the hell out of uh, VCs. It's not the funding that I'm worried about, it's, mm -hmm. the, other, it's the slow speed of decisions. Yeah, the yeah I mean, go, I mean, but yeah. in reality, government, uh, as, as, as any sector, has its uh, advantages and disadvantages. I mean, uh, one, one of these advantages is that they move slowly, uh, there's a tender process, you have to invest a lot of resources in that tender process. But the uh, governments, on the other hand, are one of the most loyal customers that you, you, would, have, you, you, could, you could have. Uh, in, in the private sector, I mean, it's easier for vendors to, to, for, for customers to switch providers than, than in the public sector. So in, in the public sector, once you're in, once you're certified, uh, because uh, all of these businesses are regulated so in its certifications, this becomes barriers to entry for, for new entrants. And, and if you're in, uh, basically, you, you, have a, you have an advantage. So, so I, I, think, uh, I think we need to see uh, some of these risks and these advantages, but uh, there's a lot of advantages in terms of uh, the customer loyalty, long-term contracts, uh, stability. You know you're going to get, you get paid, you know? Uh, and sometimes uh, that doesn't happen in the private sector. But it's true that that venture capital funds, uh, when you say you're in the government space, they look at you and say, I don't know if this is for me, you know. Although, uh, for example, at Cycle we've raised uh, over 150 million euros uh, from eight venture capital funds over the last uh, 10 years. So that doesn't mean that uh, you cannot get fun. fun. Great, thank you, Brad. I mean, I, I would start by saying, it depends what motivates you as an entrepreneur. I'm motivated by bringing large-scale change to the society around us. And if that is what motivates you, there is no better time um, to jump into GovTech than now. 
because you can, through the smallest of startups, transform the lives of millions of people. And that, to me, is worth getting up in the morning for. And it really is why you know, I slogged through to build public when I could have left number 10 and joined any one of the world's banks and consultancies. And I think additionally, I would, you know, I think Peter makes a series of great points. Governments are, are loyal once you're in, they pay, and they pay on time. But I would go further. Have you tried selling to General Electric? That's damn hard, and it takes a long time. And if you tell me that it's easier to sell to General Electric than it is to sell to Birmingham Council, um, I've got another story coming for you. Because um, the reality is, governments can be as slow or as long as you are, as you are equipped to deal with that process um, in terms of how you understand the tendering, how you build your product, how you sold yourself into the market. And the final thing I'd say is, and that's what I feel so exciting, is that there used to be a time when if you wanted to transform government, you had to do it on the inside, right? Um, then there was a time when you wanted to transform government, you could do it from the outside, but it was all about getting that government contract. Today, you can transform large swathes of um, areas that were previously uh, perceived as government policy, but are now partly being consumerized. Um, so you know, earlier today, there was a panel on, a panel on well, well-being. Um, and uh, it's interesting how what has been a core government policy, healthcare, is now becoming increasingly a well-being policy. And a lot of actors are emerging in that space, um, developing well-being products that are then getting adopted into government. Um, and, and so there are lots of different ways. So um, if you're interested, you know, come around and it's a broad invitation to everybody here. You know, we'd love to see you in public offices. If you've got a great idea for a tech startup in this space, come and talk to us about it. Great, a great call to action. Um, Pinaris, to, to jump I'll try, I'll try to answer the other two yes. questions. Yeah. The first one on maybe the, the techno-optimism. I mean, it is important to look at things rigorously. I mean, in my team, that's among other things responsible for promoting blockchain, and we joke among ourselves, and there's a difficult problem, put it on the blockchain, it's solved it. No, obviously not. I mean, these things require changes in procedures, systems have to be designed, there's programming, and then there's much more than that's just the technical behind it. I think an example of good practice at the European level is our European Data Protection Supervisor's Office. Uh, which has an ethics board with, I think, Professor Floridi from Oxford Internet Institute just of the street is one of the members, which looks at not the ethics of the legislation, it's there, but they're looking at, in light of the new technologies, artificial intelligence, big data, also blockchain, what does it mean to be human? So for some people, this is maybe a little bit, uh, I don't say too much in the clouds, but really how this is changing our lives and how perhaps the future legislation or the enforcement needs to change. We should try to adapt rapidly useful technologies and be pro-innovation, but they don't solve anything and they sometimes bring new problems. On the other issues about government uh, causing problems, I mean, I can speak, of course, for, for the European level. If we ever had the philosophy, as sometimes people say, that if it moves regulated, it's not the case anymore. Now we look, is self-regulation enough? Is something uh, fine to just be left unregulated? Is there a need to perhaps enable something in the whole digital single market through a regulation? This week with the FinTech Action Plan, we'll have a, a crowdfunding regulation, which will be passporting crowdfunding. If you're in London, at least for, for right now, or Paris, um, your crowdfunding platform will be able to work in all 28 member states when that, once that comes into force. The second question, which is a more difficult one and that is a little bit away from me, but in fact we just had a cryptocurrency rally 
roundtable with our Vice President Dombrovskis last week. And this is the attitude of the European Central Bank and almost all the central banks, I think also the Bank of England, that they are very suspicious of the cryptocurrency startups. And you have a message basically going out, banks should not be holding cryptocurrencies for customers, and it's very questionable whether these are customers that you want to have in terms of financial stability. So it's not, how to say, with, within my remit, and it's less regulatory than it is prudential supervision. And this is something that with events like that one, but it has to happen at the national level as well, there has to be more confidence created between the sector and, and the supervisor. And right now the supervisor also for partially good reason, the money laundering cases and the volatility has worries. Great. And Robin, do you have thoughts to share either on pitching, you know, why, why GovTech as an area to go into or um, on some of the doubts that we've heard um, on the role of government um, and, and the optimism um, surrounding startups. Um, very briefly on each, I mean, Daniel said it very eloquently. I just say for my part, I spent two years after my last company looking at looking for something that was a huge, a billion dollar business opportunity, but where there was no trade-off in impact. So the bigger you got, the more successful you got, the more impact you had, because there usually is a trade-off in impact. If you not working in healthcare, education, or clean technology, there's usually a trade-off. And I think GovTech is one of those rare areas where there isn't, and for that reason, tremendously exciting, as well as the timing. I, I suspect in 10 years, there'll be people saying, I wish I had gone to GovTech back, back then. Um, on the tech utopianism, I mean, I'm, I'm a, a techie by background. I love it. I'm also super, super skeptical of um, some of what the tech platforms are doing. Now, building a tech platform ourselves, I think about this a lot. And the one thing I would say is they have tended to be most damaging once they are no longer startups or, or present the greatest risk, once they are a very large, um, almost monopolistic company. So I, I would worry much less about, I think you can, you, can, you can foster innovation at the small scale with much less danger than sitting by when big players uh, do nothing. This, this maybe feels a bit draconian, but I, I think we're going to need something like data monopoly laws soon. I think that will, but if, if done right, those could go a long way towards um, checking some of the, the very big actors. Um, as a something to look at, I would definitely follow Tristan Stewart's work. Um, Tristan Harris, sorry, apologies, who's doing um, this big movement around time well spent. He was Google's um, ethicist, uh, product ethicist, um, and, and is looking at all these difficult questions. And then finally, just an irony on, on the, the whole blockchain debate. Um, there's, as you know, a lot, a lot of work on AI and the risks it might pose to uh, humanity, and a lot of people are, are very wary of this. Um, big disagreements, but apparently, um, at least one of the institutions that is is looking at the risks of AI no longer has a funding problem because a lot of the um, crypto millionaires and billionaires happen to care a lot about this issue. So whatever else good or bad crypto does, it might um, provide some great research into one of the, the scariest and most important problems of our time. Thanks, Robin. You had one last point to add to that, Daniel. So I just wanted to come um, to 
one of these questions um, because you mentioned bias, and of course that you can take that in a number of different directions. Let me just take it in one direction, which is um, we all know that the tech community suffers from an underrepresentation of women, uh, and particularly at the founder level. So I think it's something like twelve percent. Um, on top of that, if you look at which businesses are getting uh, funded, particularly by VCs, but also by angels, it's predominantly by um, you know male founders. And I think it's sad to say that that is a particular challenge in GovTech. I think that we are at the earliest stages of a new sector. So, you know, we have um, all the opportunities to course correct. Um, but I think it is important that we course correct. Um, and, and, and doubly so um, than any other sector, because we're talking about technologies that are meant to serve our society around them. Um, and need to reflect in the design and product and um, approach that, that society. Um, so I just wanted to, to put that down as an issue we are very alive to and try to focus a lot on um, because it's very important. Great, thank you, Daniel. Unfortunately, we're nearly out of time. Um, so I'm just going to ask each of the panelists to, to leave us with um, if you could send everyone out um, to read one piece of uh, what one article, um, read about one topic, or look into one really interesting company in GovTech tonight at home, what would you send them out to do? Well, I mean, something that's very relevant to today's discussion, probably many of people already know this book, but uh, uh, Mariana Mazzucato, who's at UCL now, uh, The Entrepreneurial State. Great, thank you. Pedro? I would suggest, uh, and again, it's a very self interested uh, <laughs> comment. Uh, I was going to say our website, no, 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 it's not, it's not that self-interested. It's a, a book, uh, why, why Nations Fail, which talks about governance uh, and the importance of governance um, to build basically successful countries. Thank you. Daniel? Well, since you've done books, um, I better come up with a, a, a company, um, or, or perhaps through a company an issue. What we haven't talked about is digital identity and how incredibly transformative um, the, 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 the way in which com companies operating in the digital identity space are going to be for absolutely everything that we do, including government. So I would recommend that you read up on digital identity and the transformation therein. And one of the, you know, there's been a, a series of recent reports, including by the World Economic Forum. And if I had to mention one company, selfishly one I've backed called AIM, but there are a number of other really interesting companies and I would sort of recommend them. Great, thank you. And Robin? Uh, well, I have to be shameless here because our company includes a team of amazing journalists who write about policy and policy innovation. So um, check out uh, Apolitical and our, and our writing on some of these innovation frontiers. Excellent. Thank you. So please join me in thanking all four of our panels today.